Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Laura Landon for the New Books Network. The music you're hearing is from the song American Soldier, performed by Toby Keith. Toby Keith's American Soldier is an example of what two Canadian professors write about in their 2010 book, Pop Culture Goes to War. The book argues that popular culture tends to reinforce militarism in American society, whether in popular songs, Hollywood movies, television news, or in video games, the book shows how popular culture strengthens support for American military solutions to world problems. At the same time, the book also argues that popular culture is a source of resistance to militarism. The subtitle of Pop Culture Goes to War reads, Enlisting and Resisting Militarism in the War on Terror. The book was written by the husband and wife academic team of Jeff Martin and Aaron Stoiter. Both teach at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada. They were interviewed at their home in Sackville, New Brunswick, by Canadian journalist Bruce Bork. I'm Erin Stoiter. I'm a sociology professor at Mount Allison University. I have a long-standing interest in the media and the way that we rely on it to tell us about important issues of the world and how it can let us down sometimes not provide us with all the information we need to make important decisions in a democracy. I'm uh, Jeff Martin. I teach uh, political science at Mount Allison University, mainly international relations and Canadian politics. And uh, I was schooled in a lot of the classic ideas of international relations and U.S. politics and foreign policy uh, in terms of in, in, in the sense of power politics and things like this. And uh, I suppose maybe this research effort was was a recognition that that maybe the education I got as an undergraduate was sort of had become defunct given given how the world had changed in the last 30 or 35 years. Um, I'll leave it at that. We wrote this book because I think of the situation that we were in in the early 2000s. The obviously 9/11, but then the 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 U.S. unilateralism in both how it undertook its war in Afghanistan. It, it's what, in retrospect, was a fairly obvi- obvious case of aggression in Iraq in 2003. The the idea too that this isn't just about politics or just about economics, or just about society, or just about culture, but it's about all those things interacting with each other. And then I think it's also about the, the, the tendency to neglect the cultural element, 
the cultural element both in creating a society that the reflex is to go to war, but also when in past transformations and possibly future transformations, the rural culture has played and will play in challenging that reflex or, or transforming that. And really, that, that was what we wanted to work on, was to try to bring that out. I'm sitting here in Iraq And I wish my head had eyeballs in the back It's a bummer that my Hummer is an armor to a T Show me your support, you spent a dollar Pop culture goes to war to sort of bring attention to the role of pop culture, particularly in normalizing war and militarism so that it becomes an obvious solution. Or sometimes you hear journalists or um, say, well, isn't that just a no brainer, meaning we don't have to apply any kind of critical thought to this? Isn't it just like the natural solution that, you know, we've been attacked and we need to go and attack? And so Pop culture is a place where people tend to turn off their critical brain. They listen to politicians or they listen to, you know, talk shows with a certain alertness that there could be propaganda or manipulation. But pop culture is the site of relaxation and entertainment. But a lot of strong messages historically and in in the current period um, are expressed through pop culture, including issues of resistance. And so I wanted to kind of turn the eye on them and show um, that they have an important role in this debate. What was happening as you were writing the book? We've been thinking about this book since the very early days, post 9-11, and then the kind of continuing sort of almost endless nature of the war on terror. Um, And then Obama had won the Peace Prize, and we were, you know, not feeling as hopeful as some people were that there was going to be a significant change or trajectory, that we saw a lot of kind of sort of continuation of a militarist response the development of the drone wars. And um, so we were thinking, you know, this it's not just the big flurry of post 9-11. This is continuing. This is becoming endless war. This is becoming routinized war. There's, you know, when is this going to be over? What, are, do, are people even aware that we're still at war? And so we thought, you know, we, we need to weigh in on this. I know there's nothing weak, nothing passive, nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King. But as a head of state sworn to protect and defend my nation, I cannot be guided by their examples alone. I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement could not have halted Hitler's armies. Negotiations cannot convince al-Qaeda's leaders to lay down their arms. To say that force may sometimes be necessary is not a call to cynicism. It is a recognition of history, the imperfections of man, and the limits of reason. We were writing Pop Culture Goes to War when Obama won the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, but also I think we were very much reflecting on the optimism and what we at the time thought was the unjustified optimism in that transition from George W. Bush to Barack Obama. And, and, and also I think we were, we, we do tend to look at things on a long scale, not just 
very much short-term considerations, uh, and we're, we tend to be very skeptical of, of, of those claims about people being able to identify some kind of transformation while they're living in it, some kind of fundamental transformation, whether it was, you know, the claim that 9-11 changed the world, the claim that the election of Barack Obama would change the world, even today the, chain, the claim that Donald Trump would change the world, that, that, that we, we see things in a long stretch along over a long period looking at looking at continuity rather than just in change so coming at it too with a skepticism about uh an awful lot of people are pouring their hopes into this situation and into this newly elected president but not necessarily grounded in in what he himself has said and what he wrote in his books and and in some ways the fundamental conservatism of the man in that old Republican sense before George W. Bush, before certainly before Donald Trump, but before the before the neoconservatives, Barack Obama looks an awful lot like an old, old-time Republican of the 50s, 60s, or 70s, which is to say not quite what people thought they were getting. So those are really the, as we wrote the book, that was uh, the environment we were in. So the book was subtitled Enlisting and Resisting Militarism in the War on Terror, and we wanted to sort of highlight the role of militarism as a sense of finding and sort of leaning towards a military solution at various uh, moments in the war on terror. So from the very first attack of the airplanes on the Twin Towers and at the Pentagon um, and in Pennsylvania, you know, there, there wasn't a sense of doing a deep dive, you know, who are these people, why are they mad, um, how do we pursue them to justice, what are their sort of um, economic supports. It was very much more like which country that we are already mad at can we go and bomb and declare that they have weapons of mass destruction. And the kind of sense of support for that among the populace and the media and politicians. So the idea that you know go, that we reach for a military solution and that that seems normal and appropriate and the tremendous civilian casualties that are associated with that um, countries that don't have you know anything to do with this fight then becoming our enemies and then you know becoming you know then then wanting to retaliate against us so that that notion we thought with this extended endless war that we're in now on um, the war on terror seems like needed to be sort of addressed in terms of how has militarism become so normalized and commonplace in our, you know, everyday sort of forms of entertainment, um, even like, you know, in terms of like, you know, camouflage clothing or um, sort of plots of television shows and comic books, but also how are people engaging in a form of resistance against not just a specific war, but it, just the notion of militarism in general and how that's met by the public. What I'll add to what Aaron has said is that um, militarism is, first of all, an ideology, which is signified by the uh, suffix ISM at the end. And uh, what the ideology said, especially in its, its logical conclusion, uh, is that, is that the, the only real solutions that are entertained are military solutions. So y y the more militaristic the regime, the less talk there is of diplomacy or the less talk there is of law enforcement – or those kind of judicial processes, it become everything becomes a military. The military is the solution for every problem. Use of the military, uh, and in fact, to to uh, quote um, the distinguished academic, the late uh, Chalmers Johnson, the the three things of note that we uh, we see 
to identify militarism that we see uh, plentifully in the United States are uh, the emergence of a professional military class and the glorifications of its ideals, uh, the preponderance of military officers or representatives uh, uh, of the arms industry as officials of state policy, uh, and then the uh, the devotion to policies in which military preparedness becomes the highest priority for the state. So uh, the the all the other one might say that the 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 coercive things that the state do take on more and more importance, and then the other things that the state are supposed to do, like provide uh, domestic order and social programs and things like that, all tend to recede, and more and more of the budget is taken up by the military, and there's an unquestioning of that. So really the central argument of our book is that the continuity of militarism in American life and foreign and defense policy is related to many decades in which U.S. domestic popular culture has reinforced rather than undermined militarism. I hear people say, we don't need this war. But I say there's some things worth fighting for. What about our freedom and this piece of ground? We didn't get to keep them by backing down. They say we don't realize the mess we're getting in Before you start your preaching, let me ask you this, my friend Have you forgotten how it felt that day? Uh, culture is kind of like the water that fish swim in, and it's as though someone's changing the salt content up or down. Uh, or at least these things change over time. So part of what we're doing too is we're we're thinking about the fact that that it's not like culture has been a constant, but a great efforts have been made, including government money, defense money, and so on, to 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 increase the profile of the military in 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 the sporting world. Uh, the, the I suppose one may say the role of ownership in uh, in. Uh, in, in a concentrated radio industry that's uh, encouraged certain kinds of music. In fact, they'll even go so far as essentially to say that 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 the promotion of militarism and the promotion of patriotism and supporting our troops is kind of like the default and the norm, but that resistance to that is political or politicizes things. So there's it's even to the extent that, and again, the idea of the, the, the normal thing is to spout certain uh, verities uh, and to label... Uh, to label uh, the, the 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 questioning of that as the outlying opinion or or the, the or the politicized position, as opposed to seeing the the highly political nature of of, uh, of of the way in which culture has become more militaristic. When things about the movies, television, music, uh, sports, and so on, it, it, I think uh, what we what we, we we try to do is 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 draw out these kinds of fairly fascinating elements of, of uh, uh, the, the role that culture can play and then how, how, in a sense, culture has been changed over time and, and, and yet how culture can be changed back. Have you forgotten? Aaron Steuter, I noticed that in the introduction to your book, you quote uh, Martin Luther King from the speech he gave a year April 4th, 1967, a year before he was assassinated. Um, why were you inspired by that speech? We were 
um, inspired to use the words of Martin Luther King's discussion on militarism right away in the book because a lot of people are not familiar with Martin Luther King's analysis of militarism and it really has a lot of resonance at the time and to this day and really reminds us about how it can spread through society and become such a powerful force and it needs attention paid to it in order to overcome it. It needs to be named in order to be claimed in the kind of language that Martin Luther King would talk about. And so we wanted to you know, remind people that this is an ongoing struggle and it was a struggle that was part of the social movements of the 60s and we wanted to revive um, that sort of sense of movement and analysis um, by referring to his words um, in, in the early part of our book. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. We still have a choice today Nonviolent coexistence, a violent co You're listening to a New Books Network interview with professors Aaron Stoiter and Jeff Martin, authors of Pop Culture Goes to War, Enlisting and Resisting Militarism in the War on Terror. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Bork. So, Jeff Martin, you write in your book that in a militaristic society, the dominant impression that citizens get about war from their culture is one of war as a noble and glorious endeavor. How does that play itself out in American history? Well, uh, every every war the United States is engaged in, going back to the uh, U.S. War of Independence starting in 1776, has been uh, a war that, uh, in in the popular presentation, uh, has been about uh, the United States is either in a defensive role or the United States is uh, throwing off the shackles of British colonialism in the case of the War of Independence. It's always about the United States being forced to go to war. Uh, it's about, uh, therefore, the United States was subject to some kind of aggression. Uh, and and the, 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 the truth of the matter, of course, is more matters of uh, the expansion of the United States across the North American continent, the expansion of the United States in the world. So there's this kind of denial. There's a sort of self-defined innocence of the United States uh, and this denial of any American culpability in why wars break out. And, and therefore, the wars are uh, purely, uh, purely defensive and purely uh, noble in terms of the intentions of the country. Now, you have a chapter in your book called The Price of War, um, and there's quite a high price to judge by what you write. Um, who bears the costs of war, these American wars? Well, it's very important to recognize the differential impact and the differential bearing of the price. There's a tendency for uh, for the, the poor and the poorer part of the population to bear the cost of war. So disproportionately, it's people of color, uh, it's the poor who are serving and they're the ones shedding blood, whereas the affluent in the United States, they're more likely they're more likely to be the investors, including the investors in the military-industrial complex. So the investors in in the aerospace companies, the those who make weapons, ammunition, uh, the investors in uh, the the privatization of overseas military operations, whether it's whether it's food production or whether it's construction or whether it's actually uh, uh, mercenaries or 
or, or private military contractors, as some people want to call them. Now, uh, Jeff Martin, when you mention the costs of war, uh, in fact, in your book, you have a quote from uh, Cindy Sheehan, Peace Mom, mm-hmm. um, uh, from her Memorial Day speech in 2009, um, and we might just play a clip of that uh, in which she discusses this very thing, that who pays the cost of war. It's not just about our soldiers. It's about millions and millions of innocent civilians that have been killed because of this U.S. imperial quest for profit, for resources, for power. People in Pakistan and Palestine and South America and Asia... Southeast Asia have paid horrible, horrible prices so most of our country can walk around not even knowing that we're a violent empire. That was Cindy Sheehan, the peace mom who lost a son in Iraq, Casey Sheehan, and uh, who has been ever since campaigning for peace and against the American, what she sees as American imperialism. Um, Aaron Stoiter, earlier, Jeff Martin, your partner and co-author of the book, mentioned the term the military-industrial complex. Um, Where does that come from? Um, That term actually comes from the sociologist C. Wright Mills in his work, The Power Elite, and he gave... um, a term that captured this power um, sort of connections between the military, between the economic sort of um, profit agenda and the government and kind of gave a sense that there was powerful, strong influencing forces on the government, you know, to purchase military equipment, to continue in military interventions in order to you know, get funds for lobbying efforts and re-election campaigns and to support the economic base in the home states. And uh, that term was then popularized and was picked up by President Eisenhower, um, who felt very frustrated that he felt tremendous pressure by this military-industrial complex and was, you know, felt that he needed to participate in elements of militarism and war that may not have been his first choice. And so when he left office, he gave a very powerful speech that has um, been um, listened to intently ever since, saying that, you know, beware those influences, beware how pervasive that power is, and that's something that will have significant consequences for military budgets, domestic policy, and of course, international policy. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, Resources and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. 
the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. That's the voice of uh, Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address as American president in 1960. Earlier, Jeff Martin, you did mention that in the costs of war, there are real direct costs in the USA itself, in domestic programs. Um, how are those reflected? Well, the the United States spends, uh, depending on how you measure this, currently around uh, $800, $900 billion a year, possibly even as much as a trillion when you bring in all of the um, the spending on in other departments. Uh, and in fact, as, uh, uh, as journalist uh, George uh, Mumbio uh, says, um, the U.S. spends as much on war as on uh, education. That is to say, the federal government in the United States spends as much on war as it does on education, public health, housing, employment, pensions, food aid, and welfare put together. Really, no other category of U.S. federal government spending has increased the way that the military has increased. It really has squeezed out uh, all kinds of domestic possibilities in terms of programs and and at the same time, there's been a kind of semi-privatization of education. If one thinks of the great expansion of the cost of university tuition, the the great increase in inequality within the United States in terms of the the, the top one percent, top point one percent, and their levels of income, their levels of wealth compared to really even the poorest half of the population, let alone the poorest twenty percent of the population. So there's some there's some very disturbing things that are happening, and they're very much. They're very much over the last 30 or 35 years bound up in this really this recovery of of the prestige of militarism after the rough period of the late Vietnam War period. But really, the last 35 or 40 years has been this 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 major uh, recovery of all of these militaristic ideas with some serious consequences for the country. In the book, we quote the journalist uh, Chris Hedges, who you know, very powerfully reminds us about the tremendous cost of permanent war and what that does, not just to our enemies, but to ourselves and to who we are as a people and to the levels of, you know, economic and political corruption and the construction, you know, of the other as an enemy and, you know, the destruction of our domestic policies and the acceptance of a surveillance culture. So, um, it's really worth you know listening to his thoughts on this because I think they really affect some of the moral issues at stake. Now, one should also make it very clear that the peculiar quality of American corporatism uh, is uh, intimately linked to the defense industry. Sixty uh, percent now of discretionary spending, federal discretionary spending, goes to d- the defense-related industry, and uh, that permanent war economy coupled with the corporate state um, is destroying the heart of America, quite literally. A short clip there of the American journalist Chris Hedges, and we're here discussing Pop Culture Goes to War with the authors of that book, Professor Jeff Martin and Professor Aaron Steuter. Um, uh, Jeff Martin, you uh, discuss the concept of blowback in the book when it comes uh, to American military adventures abroad, the constant stream of them. What is blowback? Uh, blowback is a, a term that's used, uh, has been used by people within the U.S. Uh, intelligence system 
uh, and I think it was brought to public attention by uh, Chalmers Johnson uh, and others. And the whole idea of blowback is uh, is uh, essentially when something that happens in the world is a result of it's a result of U.S. actions that were unknown to the American people. So, in other words, blowback is when uh, some country out there does something. Uh, many things that happen uh, in the world say that that the United States will interpret as aggression against itself are in fact actions uh, that are really retaliation for something the U.S. government has done that has been basically unknown to the American people. It tends to uh, encourage the cycle of, of of militaristic conflict because because there's never a reckoning in the United States, at least in the in the mass uh, media. Or, or for mass consumption, there's never really a reckoning of past U.S. actions, how they have contributed to a situation. Uh, so I think I think blowback is very much situated in this whole in this whole challenge that we have. Uh, but it really, I think, describes pretty well the, the I suppose one might say the propaganda system that exists within the United States that that doesn't really provide people with information, or certainly not with easy information that would allow them to to understand uh, uh, why things are happening as they are. Um, in fact, um, the late Chalmers Johnson mentioned blowback in an interview he gave to Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! some years ago. So here's a clip of that. It means retaliation for clandestine activities carried out abroad, but these clandestine activities also have one other caveat on them. They were kept totally secret from the American public, so that when the retaliation does come, they're unable ever to put it in context, to see it in cause and effect terms. They usually lash out against the alleged perpetrators, usually simply inaugurating another cycle of blowback. The best example is easily 9-11-2001, which was clearly blowback for uh, the largest clandestine operation we ever carried out, namely the uh, recruiting, arming, and sending into battle of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union uh, uh, during the the 1980s. This is the way the CIA is involved. The late American historian Chalmers Johnson on the concept of blowback. Erin Stoiter? So I guess I would just add to what Jeff has said, that there's a cultural aspect to this as well, so that the United States' culture is spread around the world, um, and there's a great celebration of that in the United States about McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Disney being in all of these other countries. And in some ways, there's an enthusiasm for that in parts of many countries who want to have access to these benchmarks of sort of Western culture. But there's also a hostility and a blowback to that as well. Like, what about our culture and our stories and our movies and our traditions and our beliefs and values, they are being, you know, eliminated from our televisions or our movie theaters or the food that our children expect to be their cultural food. And it's not entirely just an open market process. You know, if you look carefully, you'll see that the Americans um, make, you know, cultural policy a very significant part of their foreign and economic policy. And countries who say we don't want to have, you know, all of the movies from made in the United States in English in our movie theaters face economic consequences and potential, um, you know, trade co- consequences as a result of saying that we want to, you know, have our stories for our people. And so that 
kind of cultural, you know, um, opportunity to spread stories about the greatness and justness of the American cause or the, you know, the, the, the choice of militarism as a solution may not be representative of the values of people elsewhere in the world. But increasingly, it is becoming a mainstay of the, the diets of their children on television and at the movie theaters and the songs that they sing and the blockbusting charts. You're listening to a New Books Network interview with professors Aaron Steuter and Jeff Martin, authors of Pop Culture Goes to War, Enlisting and Resisting Militarism in the War on Terror. The interviewer is Canadian journalist Bruce Bork. Uh, Jeff Martin, you have a whole chapter in your book on toying with war, war toys uh, for children, um, and you mentioned G.I. Joe as prominent among them. Uh, yes, the... The central theme there is that uh, that children have to be prepared for the idea of joining the military, being in the military, seeing that as a normal part of life. Uh, and I think G.I. Joe uh, was particularly important in really the 19, from the 1960s through the 1980s. And in fact, it shows both uh, the the use of culture to to promote militarism. It shows what happens when there's resistance to militarism in the 1970s, and then you see a resurgence of militarization and a resurgence of G.I. Joe. He'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. It's here, the G.I. Joe collection. Infantry troopers. Codename Grunt. Bazooka soldier. Codename Zap. Motor soldier. Codename Initially, in the mid-1960s, G.I. Joe was presented as a kind of uh, a, a member of the United States Army, and so everything was connected to the Army, the Jeeps, the rifles... Uh, all the equipment, the uniforms, and so on. But then with the growing unpopularity of the Vietnam War, the uh, toy maker decided they had to retool G.I. Joe. And so by the early 1970s, they had rebranded G.I. Joe as the adventure team. So suddenly, G.I. Joe is not this totally clean-cut U.S. Army recruit. G.I. Joe uh, suddenly is more diverse in the sense that you have uh, uh, that all the figures have this kind of like fuzzy fuzzy beard and hair and you even get an african-american character and you have there's a there's a sea land and air gi joe and but all the all the the storylines are civilian the equipment is civilian so there's a helicopter it's a civilian jeep not an army jeep uh and there's still weapons and so on but it's it's all really more about these adventures and so you have that happens in the 1970s, I think pretty directly related to the unpopularity of the Vietnam War and the challenge to militarism in the 1970s. But then with the election of Ronald Reagan and that that turn and that sort of, one would say, resolution of the Vietnam syndrome, uh, suddenly G.I. Joe is back as this highly militarized and sort of steroid, muscular kind of uh, combat figure. So you can see that just with that sort of series of toys over really a 20, 25-year period, you can see some interesting variations that spe- really speak to the importance of culture, including uh, culture primarily for uh, for young boys. Aaron Steuter, um, how else do toy manufacturers promote the culture of militarism? Um, we see militarism spread throughout children's culture. Socialization is a very important aspect of, you know, kind of, 
getting children comfortable with the notion of war and the normalization of war and even perhaps the domestication of war. So one of the things that we saw post 9-11 was the spreading of these teddy bears wearing little combat outfits or teddy bears. Literally, there was shock and awe, a, a team of teddy bears that one had said, had said shock and one said awe on it, um, embroidered on its body. Um, you know, and the idea was that these were either supposed to support, so support for the troops or to um, have as something that you would give to a child whose family member was in the military or just in general to have these militarized playthings. So it's not the same as an action figure in terms of kind of building a sense of you are the actor playing the role of the soldier, but it's a sense of normalizing and accepting and even like holding close to yourself this soft comfort object that is in camo and that, you know, is associated with a war. Um, Similarly with the dolls, you start to see um, dolls uh, like Barbie, you know, um, being in the military and having military clothing. Um, there was one of the more controversial toys that came out post 9-11 was the, was the dollhouse. So it was a bombed out dollhouse, a very domestic civilian scene that had been, um, you know, like raided and ex- part of it had been exploded. And the idea was that you would buy this, I would assume, for children playing war games and you would have your soldiers, toy soldiers, trooping through this very domestic scene which has a very disturbing resonance when you think about these home invasions and the door-to-door, you know, um, kind of um, raids that took that have taken place in the Middle East that has been identified in particular as causing a great deal of blowback and backlash and the creation of new enemies and making more terrorism because of the, you know, the incredible violation of people's, you know, space um, by American and, you know, coalition troops. It's a good thing. I got to tell you, I love this is I mean, come on. This is like the Malibu dream house reimagined after a carpet bombing somewhere in like Afghan Iraq or something. We happen to have the war widow Barbie. How long is America going to pretend the world is not at war from Berlin, Rome and Tokyo? We have been described as a nation of weaklings and playboys who hire British or Russian or Chinese soldiers to do our fighting for us. I'm going to the war. There's a very important connection between Hollywood and the Pentagon and Hollywood and militarism in general. And much of that is very specific and direct. So that, you know, Hollywood has been called to participate in the war effort historically, you know, making, you know, pro-war movies from its very inception um, in the Second World War and during the Vietnam era. And in this current case, in the post 9-11 war on terror, they have also, you know, stepped up. And they, they have gotten a lot of benefits and perks, access to military equipment and military advisors and, you know, in many cases, funding and support by the military in order to portray the military in a positive manner. And there's quite a bit of documentation to show the amount of um, control that the military has over scripts um, when they they are participating in any way. But generally kind of a jingoistic pro-war message and the sort of the innocence um, of the American and coalition forces, and that they are not the instigators of violence, they are the responders to violence, um, that they don't start fights, but they finish fights, and that, you know, if it wasn't for them, we would be in a great deal of jeopardy. And that 
particularly around this post 9-11 um, war movie, there's kind of a sense of, you know, we don't know what it's like for the troops. They see a horror that we don't see. So if we hear that there's a massacre, if we hear there's a carnage, if we hear there's a war crime, if we hear about Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay, we should take that media coverage with a grain of salt because we don't really know what it's like on the inside. And of course, you know, we are prevented actually from having journalists have access to any of that information because of the military control over the access to information. And so there's a series of movies where you see things um, like, say, for example, Rules of Engagement, where, um, you know, the movie starts off with Samuel L. Jackson as the leader of the Marines in Yemen. Um, and he, you know, says, waste the motherfuckers. And you see that the Marines, you know, open fire on a, what look, appears to be a group of women and children. Um, and then there's a huge inquiry. And at the very end of the movie, we finally get to see what it was that Samuel L. Jackson saw that the audience didn't know about this whole time while they were judging the military for their outrageous massacre and violation of the Geneva Convention. And we find out that underneath those burqas, even the little girl has, you know, an AK-47 and that they, you know, really were a threat and a danger and they were the military was entirely justified in terms of wiping them out. It's my duty to inform you that you've been charged with murder and that you issued an illegal order to have your Marines fire into a group of innocent civilians. Murder, sir? The crowd in front of the embassy had no weapons, did they, Colonel? Yes, they had weapons! Are you ordered me to fire into the crowd? What is it about this order you don't understand? Open fire! Yes, innocent people probably died. There are rules and Marines are sworn to uphold them. I was not going to stand by and see another Marine die just to live by those rules. So that's a very disturbing film. It's been identified by many critics as one of the most disturbing films post 9-11. But it it sends a message that, you know, you might think you know, you might think you're judging them, but you don't know what's really going on because, you know, those sweet little faces out there that just look like innocent women and children, they may well have machine guns um, hidden under their dresses. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of everything I've done in combat for the last 30 years. You have to be careful here. Whether a man is charged with murder or hailed as a hero is sometimes a very thin line. Sometimes you just can't win, no matter what you do. Jeff Martin, um, in your book, Pop Culture Goes to War, you spend quite a few pages outlining a concept called hegemony. Um, How does that uh, work in terms of promoting militarism? Well, the concept of hegemony is... Uh, inspired by the uh, the Italian political thinker from the early 20th century, uh, Antonio Gramsci. Uh, and uh, what really hegemony means is it, it leads us to focus on this whole idea of, of, the, of the horizons of a society, the intellectual horizons of an individual, uh, the whole concept of the naturalness. What is natural for people to believe and and how much dissent is there? It's connected very much to ideas about coercion and consent. That in the in these liberal democratic, uh, market oriented capitalist societies, uh, they can't really function unless there's a, there's an ability to create consent among the population for for the preferences of uh, the, essentially the military industrial complex. Uh, even even the way that they use terms like they'll want to say uh, they'll talk about the Department of Defense. Well, at one time it, they called it the War Department. It was called the War Department. They renamed it the Department of Defense, 
uh, and that was really part, sort of part of the propaganda effort that is also necessary to 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 kind of maintain a military, uh, a, a, a hegemonic militarism, and and precisely to, to sometimes to reimpose it or strengthen it when there are these periods of dissent. I think the other thing is that at its base, the the challenge that elites face is that war is really not all that popular unless you take these actions. I think perhaps they. Perhaps they might want us to accept as part of the horizon that war is popular. But the reality is parents don't want to send their kids to war. Uh, so you have to have things like either uh, conscription to require people to join, or you have to have poverty to, or, to require people to join, or you have to use culture to glamorize this or to normalize it, or, or, or you have to censor the media so that people don't know what they're getting into. Uh, all of these things are very much connected to reinforcing on a continual basis hegemonic militarism. Aaron Steuter, how do the American news media contribute to the culture of militarism? There's been general consensus that the American news media completely dropped the ball and betrayed their professional uh, responsibilities after 9-11, that they banged the drums of war, they were stenographers to power, they repeated um, lies that were known to be lies and not intelligence failures, but actual propaganda coming from power holders were repeated throughout the mainstream media, um, the, giving people a false sense about weapons of mass destruction, about the nature of a potential imminent threat of, you know, a mushroom cloud coming to attack North America. Um, and they built up support for um, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, and the continued spread of the war through many other countries now, many, many years later. Operation Iraqi Freedom. A war like no other. You even write in your book, Aaron Stoyter, about the uh, themes that the the CNN and NBC and the networks used in the on the road to the Iraq invasion. Yeah, particularly when you look at the network um, news and you can see that the way that they set up the, the stages um, where their anchor um, is walking around like over a map of the Middle East emblazoned with, you know, American military flags and, you know, um, you know, sort of having this lineup of generals and, you know, kind of gushing over their military equipment. And there was like this incredible fetishization of the technology and like literally like wrapping themselves in the flag, wearing the flag, having the flag all over everything, you know, having huge elaborate logos and graphics going across the screen in terms of, you know, their sort of patriotic support um, of the war throughout the war coverage. And particularly compared to some of the later coverage of the uh, Vietnam War, it was very shocking to see that, you know, the news media that had been known for finally calling out and saying, this is a war that cannot be won, we should not be there. Some of the most famous journalists like Walter Cronkite saying, you know, this, you know, the, the American public needs to know that we are losing and to not have any type of a parallel that like that in the war on terror where it was just rah-rah the troops coming out of the news media. Unprecedented coverage. Extraordinary access. The NBC News team was there on all fronts, sharing the danger. Four mortar rounds have just come in here, exploded. In the skies. 
uh, Jeff Martin, in your book, Pop Culture Goes to War, you, there's quite a survey of various forms of popular culture. And one that kind of surprised me was professional sports. How does do professional sports uh, contribute to the culture of militarism? Uh, well, uh, the, the starting point, I think, for that is that uh, sport sport is an important part of people's life lives. It's important for young people, I suppose, particularly uh, boys, and it's important for uh, adults uh, as a form of entertainment. Uh, there certainly is variation. One could I say generally there is some variation from one sport to another, and in a moment I'll address, say, football as the, the militaristic uh, sport par excellence. But in general, the, the, the standing and the singing of the anthem at the beginning of sporting matches, the, the, the military family days, the veterans days, the, the teams wearing uh, uh, camo uniforms. Uh, and I think the other thing, too, is that there's a lot of pressure on, there's a lot of pressure on athletes that if, if they're going to say anything about politics, ideally it should be essentially conservative and militaristic. To, to turn particularly to football, Football essentially has grown to be the biggest and most significant uh, professional sport in the United States. It also is the one that its structure seems to be most militaristic. It's also the most violent. Uh, it it has that sense of the trench warfare. If one thinks of the line of scrimmage in fo- football, that in a sense is trench warfare. Defenses lined up on one side, offense on another. Uh, there's a great deal of violent struggle over that line in sense of pushing back one way or the other, and who's winning the battle in the trenches, as the commentators will sometimes say. Uh, and it's all about territory. It's about gaining territory. You ultimately score when you get the ball into their end zone at their end. One might say that the, 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 the reassertion of militarism in the United States seems to be connected or seems to be accompanied by the rise to dominance of, of football the blasting music, the fireworks, the the great spectacle of the football game. Super Bowl 51 is underway. Let's go, baby. Hey, let's lock and load it! This is going to be interesting to see how Josh McDaniels wants to attack this young... I would just add a political economy aspect to that. So it's recently been revealed that the Pentagon paid the um, National Football League to have sponsorship of the military and that there would be flyovers, that there would be military appreciation days, that members of the military would be there, there would be call-out, there would be recruiting booths, you know, all part of the football experience. And there's many football fans who are, you know, ready to watch the game and watch the militarism unfold through the game, but who do not want to see that in any way connected to actual bombing of other countries. And then it was considered to be a bit of a scandal that the military paid for that because the NFL was supposed to have done it for free. So that was really what the major controversy was, was, you know, you were looking like you were wrapping yourself in the flag, but you actually did it for money. And so in some cases, some of the teams had to pay back the Pentagon and saying, sorry, you know, we really should have been doing all of this for free. But the this, you know, this connection between the two is um, so deeply wound now um, that, you know, you never really know, you know, where is it patriotism and where is it the dollar sign? Where I flew the final mission in the Japanese sky Set off the mighty mushroom roar When I saw the cities burning I knew that I was learning That I ain't a marching anymore Aaron Stoiter, um, how about uh, popular music in, in pop culture? Uh, how does that uh, play into a militaristic culture? 
Pop music has been very significant in the 1960s as part of the resistance anti-war movement post the Vietnam War. And people mentioned after 9-11, like, where have all the protest songs gone? Um, And there was concern that the type of music that they heard tended to be more supportive of militarism, particularly the country music scene, the monopoly ownership of the radio stations where, you know, messages were coming out from the executives saying that, you know, there wouldn't be any of the critical songs being played, you know, the boycotting of the Dixie Chicks um, and those kinds of things. But if you look more closely, you will see that there was some good resistance uh, developing through the music scene. Um, people like um, Spearhead and Michael Fronte were known for this. Some of the hip-hop lyrics are very amazing and very intense in their analysis of war. But in some ways, um, the major forms of resistance um, in terms of pop culture came more through comedy. So I would say throughout that um, Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart and The Daily Show and some of, you know, even South Park and The Simpsons were the greatest vehicle of resistance for the post-9-11 um, anti-war movement, um, as well as some of the surreptitious video games, some of the comics. Um, so there was a significant pop culture resistance movement, um, but it wasn't the one that some people were expecting because they expected it to be kind of from the folk singer troubadours, um, and that wasn't the sight of it. George Bush with his lying ass. Lying ass make me sick. Don't start this unjust war. We in a war because we over there to find weapons of mass destruction. What weapons? We done been over there three, four years. We ain't found a firecracker. Now, your book was uh, published back in 2010, and we're now about seven years later. Uh, and we've seen the election of Donald Trump and uh, more bellicosity from the White House. How do you feel looking ahead about the persistence of militarism in American culture? I feel very concerned about the kind of endless war situation that we're in, that there is like active military engagement in at least seven countries that we know of and only one official declaration of war, that being in Afghanistan. And the sense that the American public in general and other North American allies and in European ones do not have a sense that this is happening. They know there's terrorist attacks happening in Paris and London and Belgium, and there's a great deal of concern about it, and it's being blamed on Islam or Islamism and not on geopolitical factors or a response to foreign policy or blowback to these outrageous actions, you know, drones flying overhead 24-7, targeted killings, huge civilian casualties, outrageous acts of uh, war crimes taking place on a daily basis, that that is not known to the public. And so then the response in the form of terrorism is seen as completely arbitrary and unprovoked and that there's no solution to it. There is no military, no political, no foreign policy solution. The only solution is greater securitization, you know, um, you know, greater limitations of people's civil liberties and perhaps a huge blowback against, you know, another religion. Um, So I feel quite concerned about the fact that we're many, many years into a war that people seem to have less and less of a sense of. It's true that we we kind of concluded this book late in 2009 or early 2010, and that was that was early in the Barack Obama era. And one thing that strikes me is the the continuity of policy, which I think in the book we ex- express some expectation that that would be the case, that there would be continuity in policy. Um, but now we're also we're really to the point where. There is this now open discussion about the fact that the voters can't really change 
policy in the United States and haven't really been able to dislocate the power of the military-industrial complex or militarism. So I suppose one could be encouraged in the sense that there seems to be a growing part of the population that is that is is expressing concern about permanent war. But one can be alarmed not only by what Aaron is mentioning, but one also can be alarmed by the, what seems to be the inability to to be able to transform uh, U.S. politics that uh, or the U.S. economy that those those that that cooperative arrangement between big business and and government, including the the permanent the permanent bureaucracy uh, in government, the think tanks, the uh, media, uh, the entertainment industry. There's this kind of complex of people who are just not willing, understandably, I suppose, to give up their, really their control in society. And yet it's causing a great deal of friction, I think, in in the society. And, and the future is untold in terms of what will ultimately uh, happen. Jeff Martin, Aaron Steuter, thanks very much for joining me today on the New Books Network. Uh, you're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks very much for helping to promote the book. You've been listening to an interview with Canadian professors Aaron Steuter and Jeff Martin, authors of Pop Culture Goes to War, Enlisting and Resisting Militarism in the War on Terror. The interviewer was Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. Aaron Steuter and Jeff Martin are also the authors of the 2016 book Drone Nation, The Political Economy of America's New Way of War. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network. Soldier